right. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, I can't believe we're already in April, which that went by fast. Um, that means in about a month and a half, our oldest son, he's going to be done with his first year of college, which I still haven't even gotten to the fact that he's actually in college. So, um, And then also, uh, in about a month and a half, I'll be taking a sabbatical uh, for the summer. So, thank you. Um, very much looking forward to just a season of rest uh, with our family and grateful for the opportunity to do that. Uh, I want to highlight a couple other things um, as well. So, the Good Friday liturgy that um, Olivia had mentioned, uh, I'm pretty excited that we're getting to partner uh, with some of these local churches uh, in Austin. You know, ever since we left our denomination a few years ago, uh, we've been looking for ways to be part of something just larger than ourselves. Um, and so I met with uh, some pastors uh, last fall uh, from Austin Mustard Seed, The Vine, uh, Restore Austin, and we were just trying to envision, and we all had kind of, we were in a similar place. We weren't really connected to something larger, but we knew we wanted to collaborate in the city. And so this, uh, you know, Good Friday liturgy kind of birthed out of that conversation. Uh, and then that also turned into doing joint youth things. So that's, that's a thing where once a month the youth collectively will be joining across the city. So pretty excited about that. Um, so if you do come that Friday and you see um, people that you've never seen before, um, that's why. And I think we're really looking forward to that opportunity. Uh, and then second, as part of our uh, workshop series that we're doing this spring, um, the next one we're hosting is on April 20th on Wednesday night. Uh, it's going to be theology conversation here at Vesper. And I know when you hear the word theology, it might be intimidating uh, or it might just kind of be, you know, you might have this image of this, it's just a, a mind exercise, a knowledge-based exercise. Um, but theology really is an invitation to practice a posture of listening, um, just as we engage and articulate God's story um, in every, through every aspect of our body, not just our mind. Um, and so I'm really excited for this offering. Jenna St. David will be hosting this, so looking forward to that. Um, and this will be a much more contemplative approach. Um, to just engaging. So I really encourage you all to participate in that. Um, so you can sign up on our website as well. Um, so before we jump in, I want to give you a moment to reflect on this question. How do you usually respond to discomfort? You know, when you encounter a moment or an experience of discomfort, uh, what's, what's usually your response? And so if you're willing, I'll give you a moment to share that with someone sitting next to you. Or if this is creating discomfort for you, don't feel obligated to participate. But I do want to give you a moment to reflect. All right? And for those online, feel free to throw your thoughts on the live chat. I'll give you a moment to do that. All right. So it, it, it didn't seem like that was too uncomfortable for you all to engage that. Um, but anyone want to throw out their thoughts? How do you usually respond to discomfort? Anyone? You try to solve the problem? Okay. We got some problem solvers. What's that? Avoid. Avoid. All right. Just get far away. Yep. You sit with it. Okay. Distract. That's a very, that's something I like to do. You rationalize when you're experiencing discomfort. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You scream like that big. Inside. That's okay, John. If you do want to scream out loud, that's fine too. Um, so recently, I had been trying to avoid 
um, a procedure that is associated with discomfort. Um, so I'm in the latter half of my 40s. And when I had my physical checkup last year, um, the doctor mentioned that I probably should schedule this colonoscopy screening. And so immediately I felt a lot of discomfort because um, <laughs> I'm well aware of the preparation that goes into it, um, which is the opposite end of comfortable. And, you know, I also had some anxiety because I didn't know what this might reveal. And so I actually ignored a lot of the phone calls um, from the, the people who were trying to schedule the appointment. I would just conveniently forget to call them back. Um, but I ultimately knew it was important. And so scheduled it, pushed through the preparation process, which turned out to be very inconvenient. Um, but I'm grateful the results also didn't re reveal anything that was out of the ordinary. Uh, and I think for many of us, like you mentioned, you know, we have a tendency to avoid discomfort or we'll do our best to either ignore it or distract ourselves or, or kind of suppress it. And as we approach these final two weeks of Lent, you know, and it, we get closer to Holy Week, we're confronted with the reality of the discomfort and suffering that Jesus will ultimately experience. And for us, that becomes our invitation to reflect on, you know, our, our own discomfort and reflect on what it reveals about our ability to grow toward Christ. You know, Brene Brown puts it this way. She says that the big challenge is getting our heads and our hearts around the fact that we need to cultivate the courage to be uncomfortable and to accept discomfort as a part of growth. And so the question I want to explore this morning is, how are we invited to welcome discomfort? as we reflect on Jesus' journey towards death? How might welcoming discomfort actually help move us toward Christ and embody his life, death, and resurrection? In our lectionary text this morning, uh, it highlights three different people and how their experience with Jesus invites us to welcome discomfort in our own lives. And so we start in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. And so just some context here. You know, there's, there's history between Jesus and Lazarus, and Martha and Mary, they're, they're all siblings. And there's a previous interaction where Martha's busy preparing you know, food for Jesus while, while Mary is just being present with him. And both things are important. And when Martha complains that Mary isn't helping, Jesus emphasizes the value of being versus doing. And then in the chapter right before this, Lazarus has some health complications, and he dies. But Jesus miraculously raises him back from the dead. And so there's obviously a deep connection between Jesus and this family, and he returns to visit them in their hometown. And it seems like Mary and Martha revert to their previous dynamic again, where Martha's preparing the meal, and then Mary, again, is being present with Jesus. And she chooses this moment to bring out an extremely expensive bottle of perfume worth about a year's salary. 
and pours it on Jesus' feet and uses her hair to wipe them. And during those times, the act of anointing was typically done for a new king or for, to prepare a body for burial. And so perhaps Mary understands that Jesus is both Messiah and someone approaching imminent death. And so imagine if you were in the room when this happened. I mean, there's already discomfort from a cultural standpoint, right? Because in this patriarchal society, Mary as a woman was perceived as less than and wasn't supposed to be taking center stage in this gathering. And this intimacy of of her hair being down, which was a taboo in that culture, and wiping a man's feet would create discomfort for everyone watching. And on top of that, the aroma from this perfume must have been both pleasant and overwhelming to breathe in. And yet she leans into the discomfort and vulnerability of being seen and offering what was an extremely generous act of love. And so for us, we're invited to welcome the discomfort of extravagant love, whether it's expressing it towards someone else or being on the receiving end ourselves. And maybe there's discomfort because, you know, we're wondering what others might think, or maybe because we don't think we're deserving of it. Or maybe we think that extravagance is inappropriate and wasteful. You know, for me, growing up uh, in a Chinese-American context uh, with immigrant parents, you know, extravagance was something we were very uncomfortable with because we had to be practical, right? Careful, prudent with our resources, We weren't given permission to be extravagant because extravagance was associated with being wasteful, which ultimately leads to loss. Uh, So I've been watching the series We Crashed, uh, which is based on the rise and fall of um, WeWork, the co-working company. And uh, Adam Newman started it back in 2010, and it exploded uh, in the decade that followed And it was during the height of extravagance in tech startup world. And so as WeWork was forming and developing, they hosted company summer camps, you know, with open bars and, you know, musical bands. They lost millions of dollars a day buying properties that they couldn't afford. Um, They held staff parties on private jets. And, you know, I understand that he's a skilled con artist But I kept asking myself, why did people keep handing millions and even billions of dollars to him when it was just all a facade? And by the end of that decade, in just a matter of a couple months, they lost around $40 billion in valuation of the company. And it's very uncomfortable and upsetting to see someone be so extravagant and wasteful with the resources they've been given and essentially lose everything. And I wonder if that's how some of the spectators at Mary's home felt when they saw her extravagantly pour out a really expensive bottle of perfume on someone's feet, right, for no apparent reason in their mind. You know, last Sunday, uh, David reflected on the story Jesus told about the prodigal son who used up his entire inheritance and was extravagantly wasteful. And even though the narrative centers around the son, uh, it's just as appropriate to call this story the prodigal father because he was extravagantly wasteful 
in his love for the runaway son. And there's extreme discomfort from the older son watching their father be so extravagant with his love for his selfish younger brother. And yet that's the extravagant love that Jesus embodies and that Mary recognizes to the point that she responds with her own attempt at extravagant love. And so maybe a practice you know, we can try in the remaining weeks of Lent is just to lean in to the discomfort and vulnerability of extravagant love. You know, who are we invited to practice extravagant love with? And not in a manipulative, you know, love-bombing kind of way, but in a way that's grounded in the, the extravagant love that God has offered us. And then how might we be invited to receive the extravagant love of God through others? And so Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then we pick up in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And so Judas speaks up here. And to be honest, he's the only one willing to say what they're all thinking. And like I shared earlier, if I had been there watching this unfold, I, my reaction probably would have been similar because this act does seem wasteful. There could have been a much more efficient or effective use of this resource. But Jesus offers an interesting response. He says, you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Which almost sounds like a resignation that systemic poverty will always exist in this world. And if Jesus admits that the poor will always be here, right, then what can we really do? You know, the church I grew up in carried some of that perspective to the point where we would avoid conversations around caring for the poor. There was almost an unstated posture that people in poverty were responsible for their own condition. And it really wasn't our problem, and it wasn't going to go away anyway. It was too uncomfortable to engage with the poor, so it was easy to avo- easier to avoid it. But for us, we're invited to welcome the discomfort of living with the poor, those who lack resources, those who lack the opportunities to gain resources because the system is working against them. And maybe there's discomfort around this because the divide seems too great. Maybe there's discomfort with our own status of being well-resourced, knowing the imbalance that exists. You know, when Jesus offered this reflection, I think he's addressing a couple things here. One, Jesus is aware of Judas's true motivations, right? That he's just using the poor as a deceptive cover for his own greed, and he's calling him out for it, right? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, of course, we're always going to have the poor with us, especially when the system enables the greed and dishonesty of those who would steal 
from those who have the most need. And then second, he's actually making a call back to Deuteronomy 15, which those listening at the time might have picked up on. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made. If anyone is poor among you in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward those who are poor and needy in your land. And this is the context and framework of how the Hebrew people were invited to live in relation to those who were poor. You know, this rhythm of a sabbatical year every seven years where debts would be canceled was intended to relieve the burden on the poor so they could hopefully regain some financial stability. And so when Jesus makes this reference to the poor always being with you, he's also alluding to how they're supposed to be practicing this sabbatical rhythm in order to disrupt the oppression against the poor. You know, I mentioned this um, last summer while we were still fully online, but our dear friend um, Becky passed away uh, from some health complications last year, and we held a memorial service here for her at Vesper. And we first met her over 16 years ago, uh, even before Vox started, when she was homeless and living on the drag near the UT campus. And over the years, Becky became an important part of our community and taught us how to give and serve from a place of mutuality. And we were able to partner with Mobile Loaves and Fishes um, to get her her first trailer home. And she insisted on paying for her utilities because she wanted to work for what she had. Plus, she was extremely resourceful. I remember each month when her bill was due, um, she would walk up to me at Space 12, our old building, and she would pull out a wad of cash. <laughs> and there'd be you know, ones and fives because she would sell flowers. But there'd also be 20s and like $100 bills. And I'd be like, Becky, where are you getting all this cash? <laughs> and she would just look at me and she's like, I know people. <laughs> but there were times where she would hit rough patches. And I remember having really difficult and uncomfortable conversations with her about whether or not it was sustainable to keep her in this mobile home, while also acknowledging the reality that you know, she wasn't able to find a full-time job. And so there were times where we had to reset her balance of what she owed, and we ended up covering it. And there was some discomfort there because we didn't want this simply to be charity that wasn't somehow empowering her. And at the same time, this was also a gift for our community to participate, even if it was just in a small way, of being part of this rhythm of canceling debt that Jesus is reminding us of. And so for us, what would practicing a version of the sabbatical year rhythm look like for us? Right? How, how are we invited to sit in our discomfort with the system that oppresses the poor? And instead of sweeping away homeless encampments so we don't have a visual reminder of the poverty that still exists, 
What would it mean for us to wrestle with what our participation is, to embody Jesus' teaching of feeding the hungry and caring for the poor? Because Jesus himself was poor, and the poor are the ones who embody him when he's not here. And so Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And then we close in verse 9. When the great crowd learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of them were deserting and were believing in Jesus. So I'll admit, I don't think I ever noticed this postlude before. And my initial thought when I first read this was, poor Lazarus. I mean, <laughs> the guy just was resurrected from the dead, and now the religious leaders want him dead again. You know, it's, and clearly the religious leaders not only viewed Jesus as a threat, but they also viewed Lazarus as a threat. Because the resurrected Lazarus represents new life, a new way of being. And for these religious leaders, their discomfort with this new life that Jesus was teaching about and offering was leading them to double down on suppressing this movement. The invitation to new life meant leaving behind the old ways. And these religious leaders did not want to be left behind. And so for us, we're invited to welcome the discomfort of what new life means for us. The discomfort that comes when we realize the old ways of being are not aligned with the ways of Christ. And it's an opportunity to reflect on how we might be stifling the new life that God is inviting us to move toward. This is what Brian McLaren said in a reflection during the early months of the pandemic. He said, maybe this is also an opportunity for us to become enlightened about some other viruses that have been spreading and causing even greater damage without being acknowledged. Social and spiritual vice viruses like racism, white supremacy, human supremacy, Christian supremacy, any kind of hostility that is spread based on prejudice and fear. The old normal, when you look at it from today's perspective, was not so great, not something to be nostalgic about, without also being deeply critical of it. As we experience discomfort in this time, let's begin to dream of a new normal, a new normal that addresses the weaknesses and problems that were going unaddressed in the old normal. If we're wise, we won't go back, we'll go forward. And so Vox, as we near the end of this journey through Lent, you know, my hope for us is that we would have the courage to sit with our discomfort instead of pushing it aside or disregarding it. That we would be willing to embrace the vulnerability that comes with the extravagant love that God offers us. And that love would simply flow into how we care for the poor and the least of these. And perhaps our discomfort with our old ways can move us towards the life of wholeness and fullness that Christ embodies for us. Let me close with this Franciscan blessing written by Sister Ruth Fox. 
And so, Vox, may God bless us with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that God may live deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that we may reach out our hand to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in the world so that we can do what others claim can't be done, to bring justice and kindness to all our children and the poor. And so we ask all this in the extravagant love of God our Creator, the solidarity of Christ, and the guidance of the Spirit. Amen.